I want to invite you to turn in your scriptures to the second chapter of John as we uh, continue in our series. Please stand at this reading of the Gospel of John. Please stand. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Um, I'm going to do something I, in respect for your, your time. I'm going to edit this morning's message a little bit by not giving quite as much foundation as I typically do. Imagine a house. If I'm a, a, a realtor and you're a busy couple and you're looking at loads of houses, I might do better in respect for your time to show you the inside of the house rather than taking more time at that point to show you the foundation. There's an element of trust. You would trust me as a realtor that the foundation is strong. The foundation is there without having it pointed out to you. So I'm going to demonstrate that trust this morning. And if there is something that you find yourself saying, I, I wish he had gone further in, then I, I'm not going because there's no foundation there or because it's a, a, there's a crack in the foundation or it's wobbly. I'm just not going there because of respect of time, and I'd be happy to, to point out or clarify uh, the areas of foundation that might be wanting in this message. It's there. I'm just not going to, to cover it all in depth like I normally do. Secondly, I want to take a moment of, uh, it's the only place I could fit it, I want to take a moment of just personal uh, uh, prerogative to say God is absolutely amazing in uh, the things that he does uh, when he wants two rivers or the leadership to consider an opportunity for Father Mercy Ministry or taking ground for his kingdom. Um, I was with Ashley Olson when we were coming out of the uh, pediatric intensive care unit. <clears throat> we were coming out the automatic doors. Well, actually, they're closed, but they the doors open and we came out and Angie Holloman was standing there with a basket that the, a number of you had prepared for the Brown family and we 
talked a little bit, and there was this huge rolling cart. It must have been eight or ten levels behind Angie, and there were two, I call them candy stripers, uh, even though they were more middle-aged perhaps, um, but they were like candy stripers, and on each of the level, there's, there's kids' stuffed animals, kids' Lego toys, kids' books. There's all of these things, and a nurse was there and was picking out certain things to carry back in to the children in that intensive care unit. The day before, and we had not responded to it, we had a uh, phone call from a group called Happy Wheels, Happy Wheels, and they said we're a nonprofit uh, charitable organization that has a ministry at three children's hospital, and we've just started at MUSC Children's Hospital, and we'd like to come and talk to you about our program. And we had not responded. That was what it was. And, and as I got back to my office from having visited the, the intensive care, I got a phone call from the gal, and um, we began to talk. And they know the good ones this gal came to rededicate her life to Christ and start this program when the Goodwin family, who some of you remember, their daughter, Simi, was dying at MUSC Children's. She came to visit them through a different connection and started this ministry where every Thursday they go to every child's room and that child gets to come outside of the room and pick a toy from this this thing and, and have a toy to look forward to or a book or something every Thursday. And she was saying, do you think Two Rivers would be interested in plugging in? And I said, boy, this is overwhelming. I mean, how? And she says, well, there is a race coming up called Color Me Rad. And they are the principal uh, recipient of the charitable portion that will be donated. Now, this is nine to 10,000 people out at the fairgrounds. Uh, Paul, were you going to be in it? You don't know? Okay, you will now. Jen Roman's in it. Anybody else registered? Well, they get, if you register, if you haven't registered yet and you're going to run, uh, please see me and let's talk because there's a promotion code and they'll get 50% of the registration. If you don't use a promotion code, they get 10%. But what they're looking for is also is volunteers like me to throw the colors on the runners at the end of the race and also to assist by giving up water bottles and then also to clean up those colors at the end of the race. They get 100% of what they would pay volunteers of those proceeds, which is somewhere, you know, it's, it's tens of thousands of dollars. So again, I know I'm supposed to be preaching, but you know that God's at work in his house God's at work, and he would use us as his walking little churches, um, worshiping him as we go, both in word and the ministry of mercy. So this morning, look at your text, and there are just a couple of things, and I may really drift from my outline this morning, but the big thing, the big idea that I want you to see from this passage this morning, classic passage of Jesus going into his house, his father's house. He's home. He goes into the temple and he makes a cord. We don't know if it was out of leather or if it was out of reeds, uh, but it was enough to drive out both animals and men. 
and he overturns the tables. And it's said that out of Psalm 69.9, that zeal, zeal, enthusiasm, white hot focus for his father's house, for his house, consumed him. And that he violently, aggressively, with an assault, drove out those distractions and those influences and those obstacles, those barriers for pure, holy worship in that court of the Gentiles. Now, I have been approached with this text before with this application. I uh, planted a church in Florida, and one of our, it was probably one of our third or fourth worship services, and like we do here, we had people that were coming, and we had prepared for new visitors, and people that were becoming a part of this new church, we had a refreshment table with coffee and uh, donut holes. And I had uh, someone come to me and say, Preacher, cannot have a refreshment table in the sanctuary. And I said, Really? Why not? And they quoted this passage. They went to the Bible and they said, Because it is like a, it's a table in the sanctuary. You cannot have furniture other than communion furniture in the sanctuary. We worked through that because I disagreed with that application. Later, when I started the second church in Utah as a church planter, we established at that time a book table. And I put the book table initially in the back of the auditorium that we met And someone once again came to me because there was a little jar there that if you got a book, you could purchase it. And they said, you can't sell merchandise. You can't sell merchandise during, you know, the the worship service. And I said, well, we're not really doing it during the worship service. But it was like, you can't have that furniture and a merchant's table in the sanctuary, i.e. the temple. Is that what the heart of this passage is getting at. Is that what John the Apostle is telling us today? That we should be very careful that we don't do any business, that if you're an insurance salesman, you don't make an appointment this morning. If um, If you are a merchant or a vendor and you see someone here that you can follow up with, you don't do that that we don't have a refreshment table or a book table or anything that would be uh, characteristic of money changers or anything like that? Is that what John is getting to? Well, as we've seen before, he tells us, he tells us after this event what he is getting to. He tells us in verse 21 that Christ was speaking about the temple of his body. He's not speaking about this physical temple that is still under construction for 46 years and this is about year number 26 or 27. This temple is being reconstructed under the beginning of Herod the Great. In the year 70 AD, Jesus dying somewhere around 33 AD, 
around 70 AD, the Romans would come in and they would totally wipe out the temple and it's never been rebuilt. And if scriptures are correct, it'll never be rebuilt. There is no more temple. The temple has been destroyed. Jerusalem, Judaism, is homeless without a temple. And they long for the day that it will be rebuilt. But sacrifices ended with the death of Christ. The the curtain was torn. The, The temple being duly molested. Sacrifices began to become more and more impossible to conduct with the law of the Old Testament and the ritual law there. And so sacrifices ceased. And then in a number of years later, the temple was destroyed. And Jesus was not saying that it's all about that physical temple. He was saying, it's all about me being the temple. And then, if you'll allow me without building foundation, later, he will come to us and with the deposit, as it were, of the Holy Spirit in his absence. Remember, John has built so far a case to show us and allow us to move from myth to real life being found in the truth that Christ is not simply from God, He is God. And that God is in His holy temple. And that now, with the the coming of Christ, God has come among His people, and with the exit, as it were, following the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, comes inside of believers who are now His temple. With me? So, by Him saying, speaking about the temple of His body, and by Him saying that it was, John saying, and you would note that it's true, that body, that temple was torn down three days later, A dead man got up and walked. That temple was resurrected again. Jesus, with zeal consuming him and cleansing the temple, is doing something other than simply telling us there's not to be any merchandise sold on Sunday morning. What he's telling us, what he's telling us, is that the Spirit of Jesus, God, so loves us and our worship. God so wants our hearts that He is ever, ever active and at work cleansing His temple. And we are His temple if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me give you Two words, holiness, sanctification. Holiness, holiness is where something is set apart for God. A holy vessel, a holy candlestick set apart for the temple. It is set apart not for common or profane use. It's not set aside for ordinary or sinful practice. It's set aside and dedicated to God. So when I say holy, don't 
Don't go, oh, it means oh, holy, holy, you know, thinking about Monty Python or something, you know. Holy means set apart. Uh, sanctification is the second word. Sanctification is the process or the action of setting something that is common or sinful and setting it apart for holy use. Put it together, sanctification is taking something that is unholy and moving it to become holy. Bear with me, bear with me. We see in the scriptures three types of sanctification. Three types of sanctification. There is positional sanctification. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, called it passive righteousness or passive sanctification. In Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, a work began in you that God is doing, that he is making you holier and holier and holier, even if you're kicking and screaming. Even if you're passive. He is doing that work. And positionally, when God looks at you, and there are scriptures galore, again, forgive me for not laying all the foundation of scriptures out, but when God sees a believer right now, positionally, you're already pure as a driven snow. Positionally, you're already completely holy in God's sight. Positionally, right now. Secondly, there is progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification, according to Wayne Grudem in his book on theology, is where God and man are partnered. God and man are partnered to more and more cast off sin and put on the life of Christ by the power of His Spirit. In other words... Progressive sanctification is where God does something and I'm doing something to put off sin and put on Jesus. To put off sin and put on Jesus. A typical fashion is the way that it works. Look at the life of Joseph in Genesis 39. In Genesis 39, Joseph is confronted with Potiphar who had daily, daily it says been presenting herself to her as an object for his affection. And finally, she grabs a hold of his cloak as if to pull him down to herself. And Joseph, externally, he is tempted in the flesh. Hands are being laid on him. He's in a situation here. Externally, he resists. That's his part. And he speaks to her And he says, your husband has not denied me anything but you. And I'm not going to do this. 
And then he testifies to the internal of what God is doing. And he says, I can't do this and sin against God, i.e., I can't, it's not that I'm worried about breaking a rule, but God has brought me this far in his steadfast love and faithfulness. How can I sin against him? In other words, the gospel, the love of God in his heart restrains him, but he must do his part as well and resist. And finally, there's ultimate sanctification. Ultimate sanctification. By the way, a great verse for progressive sanctification is Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But you've got to conclude the clause with verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, both are at work. There is something that I am to obey. There is something in my saying no to a desire and not simply leisurely say, well, you know what, I'm saved by grace, it's all grace. I'm just, man, but I might just go out and sin some more so I have more grace. God says no. But he doesn't motivate us out of simply a fear of his displeasure, but he motivates us that we see a fear of sin. We see sin as sinful. We see sin as the enemy. And we see it as something to resist, even in obedience to the love of God. But finally, there's ultimate sanctification. Ultimate sanctification is Romans 8, verse 30. I'm going to read to you... um, Verse 29 as well. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Okay, you with me? It's already mentioned sanctification. That God, knowing who would be his sons and daughters, he is already predestined that they conform and look like his Son. He is already going to take unholy objects and move them to be holy people. Just as His Son is holy. It is already... Your holiness, if you're a believer, is as sure as your election. Now stay with me. I know some of you are like, well, I'm not so sure, preacher. I know about this election stuff. and I know this is a Presbyterian church and everything. Well, we'll take this up at another time privately and we'll take it up with the Scriptures because I'm simply reciting what the Scriptures tell us, and it's a wonderful promise. If I didn't have this promise, I would be so discouraged in my defeats. But as it is, I see every battle with sin as good. I don't win. I don't think I win the majority of the battles. But the battle, when I resist sin, shows that the life of the Spirit is at work. Because if it was not, I wouldn't battle at all. But he's going to conform us and he's at work in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called. Those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified. I went to a funeral for an old friend yesterday and I heard the three types of sanctification 
recited again and again and again in his eulogy. I marveled, I marveled to hear his son Gordon, who could not fly in from uh, Australia, who wrote a eulogy, and it also laid out the three types of sanctification. And he said, my dad was obstinate, strong-willed, a difficult personality, but he was a believer in Jesus Christ. And he could give a preacher fits. But he was a creature in Jesus Christ. He believed in Jesus Christ. So positionally, God saw him as a son, pure and holy. But he was difficult. But in time, in the life of that church, that church took him on. And he loved that congregation, and the congregation loved him. And in time, he began to change. He wasn't as angry anymore. He was still a man with a strong opinion, but he became more reasonable. And part of it was his resistance to be so outspoken, but other is the unseen work of the Holy Spirit. So he's making progress. He's being transformed. And today, he is in heaven with Jesus, and he is glorified, and he is a perfect, radiant son without any sin. That's great, Pastor Phil. Okay, we're ready to end the sermon on sanctification. What in the world does that have to do with Jesus cleansing the temple? Jesus is going to clean your temple. He's going to clean my temple through the Spirit of Jesus in me because He is coming in to my house, His temple, His house. I, my body as a believer, is no longer my own. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Okay, we're almost done. I'm, I'm circling. I know I'm, I'm going to get behind the table in just a moment, so I'm circling. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I will leave it to you. Time does not permit me to read. Begin reading with verse 12. And you will see the activity that he expects to be done or not be done in that temple. And he prohibits sexual immorality not simply because he's a killjoy, but because he wants his temple to be holy. And not simply a place of purity, but a place of strength and a place of joy. He doesn't forbid anything except that that is caustic and would destroy the temple as the Romans did in A.D. 70. And he says, I am coming with a design as my temple to dwell in you. And I am not averse to being violent, being violent to take out those things in your temple that separate you and your affections from being fully devoted to me. Now I have to conclude this morning. But I want to challenge you in a couple of things. How do you see sin 
Now you may say, you know, I'm not sure about the application. I'm not sure really what you would say is a distracting influence in my life. What is it right now that you're having the hardest time saying the no to? What is it right now that when you say no doesn't like to take no for an answer? Look closer at that because it may have captured more of your desires than your desires after Jesus Christ. Why, after you've spotted that, why do you not say no easily to it or firmly and walk away having said no? Is it perhaps that you don't see that it's an enemy to your devotion and your worship and your holiness? Is it perhaps that you're so friendly with it that you think a merchant's table there is just a little thing? You'll notice that Jesus Christ is not condemning the selling of wares. Those were necessary for the Passover sacrifices to be made. It wasn't the what, it was the where. It was in the court of Gentiles rather than outside of that court. Gentiles who didn't have the the depth of understanding or intimacy and inclusion that the Jewish people do. They could only come into that court and so far. And that court is where people repented. It was in the closer you went, the holier and cleaner you were seen to be. But this court was where the broken were. And Jesus comes along and he says, I want to remove those obstacles for people who are coming as unholy, broken objects seeking love and intimacy and pardon and grace in order to be made holy. I am going to remove every object that an unholy people seeking a holy God, I'm going to remove every obstacle in the temple in order for them to be found. In other words, he wants to remove the distracting influences so we can repent. So we can take our, the things that we begin to spy in our life as unholy. And now, without distraction, we can bring them to God. And we can say, I can't resist this. I've fallen again. And that's not a morbid practice, but He meets us at that place and He forgives us and we rise up having repented. We rise up not weaker men and women, we rise up stronger men and women. And with an added frequency of of brokenness and repentance without being put aside, without being cozy with it and friendly with it and having it in our temple area, Satan trembles. And then we do become stronger and we resist more and more even as the power of God is at work in our life. I, um, I want to encourage you to do two things. I want to encourage you to stay violent. I want you to stay violent with sin. Jesus, it, it was not provocative. They didn't send for the temple police to arrest Him. They, it was not provocative. I... He saw all of that and they saw a man truly zealous, consumed by zealous, uh, 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 consumed by his house. He didn't want any obstacle so that unholy people could be met by a holy God. And they understood that. And they understood 
I think, the need to be violent with that. I didn't understand they asked for a sign. I didn't understand quite what he was getting at, why he was doing that. But again, foundationally, Malachi 3 tells us that you'll know the Messiah coming because he'll show up in the temple. And he'll show up in like a refiner's fire in a fuller soap. He will minister to the sons of Levi. That's the worshiping people so that they can worship in holiness. So he saw all of that in that temple. Even as he was willing to become the the broken temple so that we could become the very temple of God. Oh, and secondly, not only stay violent in your resistance, send for reinforcements. You can't do it on your own. Guilt and change cannot coexist. You can stay guilty for a long, long time, but you still will not change. You have to have a place to go with your sin and your impurity and your unholiness. I have to have a place to go with my guilt if I'm going to change. And coming before God, there is a promise that as I come before Him with that, there is that fuller soap that will wash out the stain. And I will change. On the night that He was betrayed, Jesus Christ was facing being consumed. And he pointed it out in the elements of the bread and the cup. His temple would be broken in just a short while. But the disciples, in consuming bread and wine that represent his temple broken for them, would know in the future as he sends the Holy Spirit to them that While his temple was broken, he had not left the house. He had simply come as promised into the temple of our body, now his body, to dwell with us forever such that we shall never have any obstacle to separate us from being unholy, becoming more holy. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would take these elements and that they'd be set aside for your holy use this morning. As I pray in Christ's name, amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed,